The President of these United States, in a meeting on immigration in the Oval Office this last week, allegedly with many corroborating witnesses and a couple who did not recall the President saying these comments specifically, made offensive, arrogant, dismissive, and demeaning comments about whole countries and peoples, particularly targeting people of color. I don't wish to spend a lot of time with this incident except to say that its real damage lies in the fact that it is not in any way uncharacteristic of this president or this administration. The campaign slogan that was used to get him into office, Make America Great Again, has racist overtones that cannot be denied. To not imagine how that sounds to people of color, to be asked to look back into the history of these United States for a golden time to which they would wish to return, to not imagine the dissonance of that for people of color stems either from ignorance or intentional dismissiveness. It is to say, oh, when we say America, well, we're not talking about you. So I don't need to list the past sins of the current president or debate whether or not what he said was racist or to debate whether or not he is racist. This is not about that. I do want to consider some of the responses vehemently rejecting what he said, which are sometimes expressed something like this. Mr. President, this is not who we are. This is not us. This is not America. This is not who we are. Now, I get that. I do. This is not who we strive to be. This is not the best of who we are right now. This does not represent our highest aspirations. But is it who we are? Well, yeah, kind of. It is an undeniable part of who we are. We cannot just close our eyes and cover our ears and sing la, 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 la when horrible things occur. They come from somewhere. And in a country that has risen to be an economic and military superpower through the systematic killing and oppression of the Native Americans who inhabited this land when white people arrived, and through the violent kidnapping, trafficking, and enslavement of Africans and others, and through persistent exploitation of vulnerable populations and the calculated pitting of one vulnerable group against another for economic and political gain, well, we don't really need to look too far to understand where such things come from, do we? And if it was all stated that clearly when it was happening, it just may not have happened. But in the way such things work, there were all sorts of legal and political and religious and scientific and moralistic and economic justifications that were gathered together to try and salve the collective conscience of white America and say, not only is all of this okay, but it was actually meant to be. Manifest destiny. And all of this denial and all of these empty justifications and all of this pain filters right down to the personal level. And what I hear 
from these reflections of people in the understanding whiteness groups is the willingness of individuals to intentionally do the work to begin peeling back these layers of deception, however uncomfortable, to do the sometimes painful work of understanding how and what we are taught about being white. To admit that, however sad it is to say, when we encounter the ugly face of racism, that this, too, is who we are. After all, the dismissiveness that I have charged President Trump with regarding his campaign slogan was also the dismissiveness which allowed Unitarian Universalists to carry on a Thomas Jefferson ball at a General Assembly, a costume ball in 1993. Reverend Rebecca Montgomery, full-time associate minister at the UU Congregation of Rockville, Maryland, writes, in the spirit of welcome, those who conceived of this social gathering did not take into account the centering of whiteness by asking people to attend in period dress. The organizers forgot or ignored the fact that in Jefferson's time, we black and brown UUs would have been slaves, property to be traded and sold, brutalized and subjected. What costume should they wear? That too is us. And I know that's hard to hear and I don't like saying it, but it's time to get real. History, despite its wrenching pain, cannot be unlived, but if faced with courage, need not be lived again, says Maya Angelou. Not everything that is faced can be changed, but nothing can be changed until it is faced, says James Baldwin. What if we, white people, don't get to walk away from this because it makes us feel uncomfortable? What if we don't get to sidestep at this time as long as we promise to master the correct words or adopt the accepted position? What if we work past that tendency in the words of Andy Pease to transpose our discomfort to denial, guilt, or withdrawal? And believe me, I understand and have carried out all of those transpositions. I am not comfortable with conversations on race and racism and whiteness. I want nothing more than to figure out the accepted, justice-inspired, compassionately inclusive position and then quickly move along. But I think something more is being asked of me. So it is in that spirit that I shared this story from my life. It is a story that carries pain with it. Lots of embarrassment. It feels risky and awkward and uncomfortable. Aren't you glad you all came today? <laughs> but I realize my discomfort is not the most important thing in the room. I apologize in advance if I inadvertently cause pain to others. I feel that it is time to get really honest about how ideas of race and whiteness operate on a personal level, the messages that are carried in this culture and the secrets we sometimes bury.
When I was seven years old, we moved from Sioux Falls, South Dakota, a predominantly white city and a much smaller town back in those days than it is now. We moved to Cedar Rapids, Iowa. Now, you may think of Iowa as predominantly white also, but let me tell you, Cedar Rapids was considerably more racially diverse in my experience than Sioux Falls. The house we were looking at renting and that we eventually rented was in a middle class or possibly lower middle class neighborhood just down the street from a drugstore and a King's Hamburgers restaurant, which was a chain at the time. I was very excited about being close to the King's Hamburgers. The house next to us was slightly smaller than ours, but it seemed meticulously tidy and the yard was mowed and the bushes were groomed to perfection. And while we were looking at the house, I saw an African-American couple come out of that house and get in their car and drive away. <clears throat> so later, after the showing and when we were pulling out of the driveway, I heard my parents mention the people who lived next door. And I remember popping up from the back and putting my head between the two front seats where my parents sat and saying, they're black, but they're clean. They're black, but they're clean. Seven years old. Where did that come from? I had had little to no experience with black people. I can guarantee that neither of my parents ever sat me down and taught me that black people were unclean or messy or careless. I never thought of my parents as racist, though as I grew and learned more, I would look back and wince at some of the things they said and did. But nothing they said brought me more embarrassment. Nothing made me feel more ashamed than that which came out of my seven-year-old mouth. Worse, the story was picked up and told in my extended family and held up as some sort of symbol of racial acceptance. They're black, but they're clean, meaning whatever color you happen to be, as long as you meet some accepted levels of responsibility and neighborliness, we're really all the same. But that, of course, is not what I hear in that statement, and I dare say that is not what you heard either. And the very premise holds so much ignorance and paternalism and deep disconnection from reality and distorted views of other human beings. How could I say that? Where did it come from? What were the images that this sheltered, ignorant, well-meaning South Dakota white boy carried in his head about what it looked like to be black and therefore what it meant to be white? And why was such a statement celebrated in my family rather than explored, challenged, transformed into a learning experience? And why, living there for a year, do I remember no further substantive interaction with our closest neighbors, while the white people who lived in the next house down were befriended and invitations to dinner or card games happened on a regular basis? basis? Those are not easy questions to ask myself, 
But these are some of the truths about my life. It is not comfortable to claim them, but it is way past time to get honest about our lived experience and the lessons we learned or absorbed or breathed through the air in a culture that is allergic to self-examination and cries out against the divisiveness that we are told is caused by honest and open discussions of race. I can't help it that Thomas Merton's words from the call to worship resonate with how I feel about the current time, even though they were written in 1968. It is either indicative of my own historical myopia and self-absorption, or it is maybe a good thing that people in many different times could claim the promise of these words. We are living in the greatest moment in history, a huge spontaneous upheaval of the entire human race, not a revolution planned and carried out by any particular party, race or nation, but a deep elemental boiling over of all the inner contradictions that have ever been a revelation of the chaotic forces inside everybody. This is not something we have chosen nor is it something we are free to avoid. We, white people, no longer can hide out in the first-class section of colorblind ignorance. Refusing to explore and learn is refusing to act. It is certain, writes James Baldwin, as if he were writing at this very day, that ignorance allied with power is the most ferocious enemy justice can have. We, white people, need to unearth and tell our stories of how we came to understand whiteness. Silence is deadly. The secrets I carry about my own past and the history of the country I call home, those secrets are deadly. They keep us stuck. In a novel I just finished by James Baldwin called Tell Me How Long the Train's Been Gone, published in 1968, he writes, I had become accustomed to the smile which masked a guilty awareness. White Americans are always lying to themselves about that kinsman they call the Negro, and they are always lying to the Negro, and I had grown accustomed to the tone which sought my complicity in the unadmitted crime. We, white people, no longer get to say, we really don't want to talk about that. And when that conversation ensues, besides daring to tell the truth about our own lives, we need to listen. May this exploration and engagement continue. One of the ways we are tentatively planning to do that is by scheduling beloved conversations, meditations on race and ethnicity for next January. This is specifically geared toward congregations and religious communities, uses a small group ministry format, offering participants a chance to rediscover the sacred and important presence of compassion, grace, risk-taking, vulnerability, and the healing joy that comes when cross-racial relationships are reconciled. 
provides a framework for institutional changes that may arise from what is learned, trains congregation members as facilitators of this work. It's all in the very early stages. Stay tuned. And I chose familiar hymns today from our old, oldest hymnal because they are familiar, because we have been singing them for a long time, and because I think they relate to this work. Do you hear? Hear the cry, fear won't still. Hear the heart's call to will. All the dreams, all the dares, all the sighs, all the prayers, they are yours, mine, and theirs. Do you hear? Or the very first verse of the one we are getting ready to sing. Where is our holy church where race and class unite as equal persons in the search for beauty, truth, and right? That is to say this work, this work we are engaged in is not something stuck on to our mission. It is not the latest fad or the newest movement or a shiny thing to be forgotten. It is central to who we are and who we are called to be. It is about deepening connections through nurturing spiritual growth, practicing justice, and, yes, inspiring joy. Because it is a powerful thing to work for justice together, as Alice Reinheimer called us to do. Because we can acknowledge the pain, breathe through it, and keep doing the work, as Andy Pease said. Because the opportunity for self-examination and reflection on our own experience and behaviors moves us to awareness and conscious action, Joanne Miller points out. Because tunneling through our conceptual ignorance expands the space for compassion, says Russ Hoden. Because we are locked into a potentially beautiful mutuality with all of our fellow travelers, says Ken Hill. Where is our holy church? Right here. Right in the midst of it all. <laughs>